Before we begin this episode, I'd just like to make a quick appeal on behalf of MSF in the UK. If you're listening to this close to the release date in the UK, we're raising funds for our emergency work across the world. Go to msf.org.uk slash podcast to support our life-saving work. Thank you. Now on with the episode. You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. We have waves of people that are still arriving. I had never seen the likes of it. Even war has rules. She was in the final stages of pregnancy and she had Ebola. They're open to the same risks, they see the same things and yet they come in day out to work for MSF. He showed me the scars on his feet from running through the flames of the burning building and running for hours as he fled for his life. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. As a new year and a new decade approaches, in this episode we're going to be looking back at the significant health emergencies that have gripped the world over the last 10 years. Some you will have heard of, but not all of them hit the headlines. We'll hear the voices of MSF staff who were on the ground and witnessed each crisis unfold firsthand. All of the events mentioned in this episode have shaped who we are as an organisation. Some are heartening and inspiring stories, others are incredibly painful and the shockwaves will resound for years to come. These events, both positive and negative, have changed how we work to reach those in need of medical care. Less than two weeks into the start of the decade, Haiti was hit by the deadliest natural disaster it had ever seen. On the 12th of January, a magnitude 7.0 earthquake hit Port-au-Prince, the country's capital. Haiti already had a struggling health system and was now dealing with the aftermath of an earthquake that had reduced homes and businesses to rubble. Resources were scarce and getting supplies in and out of the country proved extremely difficult. While this wasn't MSF's first response to a natural disaster, the medical needs that followed were a major challenge. Emergency medical doctor Javid Abdulmanem was on the ground shortly after the earthquake hit. I wasn't prepared. I didn't process it at the time. It left a scar. It was the first time I was exposed to so much avoidable death. It was the first time I felt quite so helpless, not being able to do what I knew I could do for my patients. These people would not have died had they been in front of me in a hospital in England or in the Western world, and that was hard to deal with. You know, the people shouldn't be dying this way. I had no way to make diagnostics. Young patients with infections, just young people dying left, right and centre. There were no old people in Haiti. It's estimated that around 222,000 people died and 1.5 million people were left homeless. MSF's response in the first few months following the earthquake stretched both our teams and our resources, but nothing could prepare Javid and his colleagues for the outbreak of cholera which spread rapidly across the country. I had one month, being my last month in Haiti when I'm already tired, of a full-on assault with cholera. I mean, I had never seen the likes of it. You know, it was, a, it was the, first, the first day after Hurricane Thomas came, floodwaters came through, heavy rain, washed in the cholera into the slum. And I swear the next day I was 
walking out of that at the end of my night shift, I had a horrible trauma patient, a man hacked to death. I had to change my clothes just on the night shift for the hurricane. What's that? There's some people with cholera symptoms. Oh my gosh. And, and that was, you know, five patients and the next day 16 and the next day 20 something. By the end of the week, 200 a day. How can you keep up with 200 patients a day? You can't. And you're still running your hospital. You know, it was boom, 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 boom. At the time, you were sort of galvanised. Right, we've got work to do. I'm going to do this. Right, you know, I'll, you volunteer yourself for the extra night shift. We all did. You know, at the time, you're like, I'm getting on with it. Now, with the benefit of time and that distance, I can say I'm so glad that I accomplished that. I'm proud that I didn't give up. In 2017, Javid returned to Dabar Hospital, which was opened in 2012 as a response to the earthquake. He witnessed just how much it had changed in the last seven years. It was lovely to see the place finished, fully functional, taking in patients and saving lives. And it was doing really well and had integrated the surgical speciality training with the Haitian system so that not only were we treating Haitian patients for free, we were also training Haitian surgeons. Building up national capacity is hugely important to MSF as it means that jobs and livelihoods can be returned to the local community. This allows our emergency teams to be sent on to the next major crisis. At the end of the 2000s, a decade of fighting began in northeast Nigeria between the military and armed opposition groups. The conflict has taken a heavy toll. Thousands have been killed and many more have been deprived of medical care, the consequences of which have led to deaths from easily treatable diseases such as malnutrition and malaria. The UN has estimated that around 1.8 million people are internally displaced across the northeast states of Borno, Adamawa and Yobe, living in makeshift camps and shelters. Project coordinator Karsten Noko has seen firsthand the impact of this decade-long conflict on the local community. We still see a lot of displacement. The emergency continues as it was in 2016, basically. Um, what is different, of course, is uh, the huge uh, scale-up of humanitarian actors. But in terms of needs for the population, people still lack uh, today access to shelter, access to water, access to sanitation facilities. MSF is currently providing life-saving medical care in hospitals in the areas of Maiduguri, Gwoza and Polka. And our mobile teams are travelling to provide care across Borno State. Still, the health needs remain enormous and the ongoing conflict makes access increasingly challenging. So moving a population affected by conflict for over 10 years into places where there are no hospitals, there are no schools, there is no water provision, there is very little sanitation facilities, actually puts them in a, in a, in a very bad position. We are concerned by the, the, the containment policies where people are stuck in camps and not being able to, free, um, to freely move uh, because that has a direct impact on their ability to earn a livelihood. And that means that they continue to be reliant on humanitarian assistance, which, uh, as I've explained, has many gaps today uh, and leaving many people um, outside of, of its scope. 
Once farmers and skilled labourers, a lot of the people displaced by the conflict have been left without jobs and no way of supporting their families. MSF Medical Director Jean-Francois Saint-Saveur visited the projects in Borno to assess the situation back in early 2017. In those places, the medical needs are huge and they are dramatic. We have waves of people that are still arriving. When I was in Pulka, for example, and doing my visit, we had in one day around 500 people came. And MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, was the actor to receive the people, do the first screening on the people to see how is their situation, those who need immediate health care to provide to them because people arrive in very bad shape. We are talking of a population that has been not attended for years and that have been living in the bush and nobody knows under which conditions. And we are seeing the cases of diseases that are disfigurating, like Noma. We are seeing children with sickle cell disease, with pain and with needs of transfusion. Malaria, for minimum things like vaccination, they have not had. So you can consider a population that will present with all the main uh, vaccines preventable diseases. It's not just health needs that drive children to our health centres. They also come to our hospitals in Gwoza and Polka for protection. With no temporary shelters available, they often stay in the hospital grounds, but this clearly can't be a long-term solution. Drawn-out displacement, violence, abuse, killings, disappearances and imprisonment have a profound impact on people's mental health. Polka is seeing rising cases of depression and anxiety, as well as post-traumatic stress and psychosomatic disorders. A decade on, the conflict is far from over and people are still caught in the crossfire. Nobody knows what has been happening to them. For sure, the mental health needs are huge and enormous in the situation. And you can see it in the people that come to our health facilities. It's like people that cannot even explain what is happening to them. They, they have pain to live and they depend 100% on the humanitarian assistance. Beginning in 2011, the world witnessed the beginning of one of the worst humanitarian crises of the 2010s, the Syrian civil war. More than 400,000 people are thought to have been killed and more than 12 million people have been uprooted. What used to be a fully functional health system has been devastated. Back in 2012, in the early days of MSF's response in Syria, MSF surgeon Paul McMaster travelled over the border from Turkey to work with the team in a very unusual location. The team I joined had been working in the mountains up in the northwest. Uh, they were actually situated within a, a cave on the side of the, the high hills. It was an old apple storage cave on a farm. We tried to dry it out with dehumidifiers and create a small emergency uh, triage area. We'd set up an operating theatre inside an inflatable tent inside a cave. It'd been cleaned, was sterile, we had full instruments and anaesthesia and we were able to do quite major operations within that facility. It had a slight problem, it had a leak which had slowly deflated around us but apart from that it was an excellent facility indeed. Paul had worked in many difficult contexts with MSF. War zones like Sri Lanka, the Ivory Coast and Somalia. 
While in those countries it was dangerous on the ground, in Syria, Paul discovered, the danger always seemed to come from the air. The difficulty was with the bombing when it occurred, and particularly if uh, something hit the side of the mountain when the whole cave would reverberate and, and dust and debris would start to come down from the roof. And that was a very uncomfortable feeling for the whole team and particularly for the patients, most of whom had already been through severe uh, bombing and had perhaps been injured in that. Uh, and many of them were terrified by that experience. So although it felt relatively safe, it was uh, often very uncomfortable in, indeed. Eventually, the cave became too small for the number of people the team were caring for. They moved to a nearby farm, and just three weeks after the move, the cave was bombed and collapsed. Since 2012, the war has only intensified, becoming more drastic and complex. Civilian areas have been routinely bombed and deprived of assistance, and access to healthcare remains extremely poor in many areas. Siege warfare has become routine. We run or support hospitals and health centres and provide healthcare in displacement camps. In areas where no direct presence is possible, we've maintained a system of remote support. This means donating medicines, medical equipment and relief items, it also means remotely training medical staff and providing technical advice and financial assistance to cover the running costs of facilities. In December 2013, civil war erupted in South Sudan just two years after it had become the world's newest country, gaining independence from Sudan. Since then, ongoing conflict has meant that one in three people have been forced to flee their homes. Among the two million internally displaced, over 180,000 live in protection of civilian, or POC, sites set up by the United Nations mission in South Sudan. In the north of the country, surrounded by trenches and large mounds of earth, topped with barbed wire fences and UN watchtowers, sits the Bentiu POC camp. Serving as a place of refuge for more than 100,000 people, Bentiu is the largest of all POC camps in the country. Michael Sheck, a nurse by trade in the UK, was working in Bentiu in 2016. The camp's based in a swamp, and when the uh, rainy season comes, it rains really badly that you're up to your knees in water. But especially in the swamp and where the people were living, the water line actually could go up to your waist level, and a lot of children were actually drowning in the water. The conditions in the camp have improved since the UN dug trenches around the site for drainage, but the people living here still have to cope with the reality of food shortages and very few resources. The people are solely reliant on um, aid from government agencies, non-government agencies, um, to survive essentially. There's no gas or electricity. People have to go outside of the camp because there's no trees or anything to go and collect firewood and the men invariably don't go because they are targeted as possible soldiers or combatants. Um, women go to, out to get firewood and they come across armed groups of men and sometimes these women are sadly attacked and raped. And as MSF, we abhor this and we do our best to try and treat the women as humanely as possible and to get them the help that they need in treatment. MSF hires many South Sudanese staff in the POC sites around the country the majority of whom live in the camps with the people they serve. The staff in Bentu are remarkable people. Uh, these are people who have left their, previously left their homes and villages due to fighting. A lot of the staff have 
seen family members or friends or relatives killed due to their ethnic um, origin um, or what tribe they're affiliated to and yet these people still come and treat people that may have came from that ethnic group but have nothing to do with the conflict and there's no animosity which is what you expect in the community. A lot of the staff are open to the same risks that the people in the camp were also open to. A lot of my staff got, uh, got malaria and were very sick as well. I had one staff member whose child actually died in the hospital as well from malaria. Most people, they need a long period of time to recover and grieve, but, and I told her to take at least a week off before coming back. And within three days, she actually came back to work. I told her not to, she needs to go home and grieve, but she just turned around and said to me, I don't want this to happen to other mothers, I'd rather be here working and that's how remarkable the people are there. They live, they're open to the same risks, they see the same things and yet they come in day out to work for MSF. As we approached the middle of the 2010s, it seemed good news was increasingly hard to come by. In 2014, the Malaysian Airlines disaster shocked the world. Fighting raged in Ukraine. Syria descended further into chaos. But it was the outbreak of a virus in the West African country of Guinea that gripped the world. Six months into the worst Ebola epidemic in history, the world is losing the battle to contain it. In West Africa, cases and death continue to surge. Riots are breaking out. Isolation centers are overwhelmed. Health workers on the front lines are becoming infected and are dying in shocking numbers. Médecins Sans Frontières has been ringing alarms bells for months but the response has been too late, too little. This is a transnational crisis with social, economic and security implications for the African continent. It is your historic responsibility to act now. That was MSF's international president at the time, Dr. Joanne Liu, speaking at a UN special briefing six months after MSF began one of the most challenging responses the organisation had counted in its history. Earlier that year, Benjamin Black, an MSF obstetrician, was sent to Sierra Leone to work in a maternal health project that, at the time, was untouched by Ebola. But that soon changed. I arrived in June, and I actually arrived in with the first MSF emergency teams for an Ebola treatment centre that was on the border with Guinea, which was quite far from the location that I was working in. And within my first shift, we had our first two suspected cases of Ebola. We spoke with Benjamin about that dramatic day on the very first episode of Everyday Emergency. Catching up with Benjamin since, he remembers the story of another patient that had left a strong impression on him. She was in the final stages of pregnancy and she had Ebola. Um, nearly all of her family had died, including her husband. Uh, but we knew that she was very likely to survive and she had a safe delivery and she managed to go home as a woman in Sierra Leone not only surviving Ebola but surviving a complicated childbirth as well and, and it was a real pleasure to, to be able to say goodbye to her and to be able to shake her hand um, at a time when we often did not touch our patients. Though I'd gone with MSF for a maternal health project knowing that I was with the organisation that was really at the forefront of the outbreak response and being part of that advocacy to speak out to the world and say 
you really need help. It actually motivated me to want to stay engaged in that response and to work towards seeing its resolution. As the outbreak ended, uh, MSF started to think about how can we respond to the ongoing health needs of the population. Um, immediately as the outbreak ended, we had projects that were focused on the health of Ebola survivors. And as the outbreak was confirmed to have ended and was just beginning to dwindle, we set up the uh, first MSF maternal child health programme, which was both community and hospital engaged. The Ebola outbreak had a devastating impact on the health system in Sierra Leone. It's estimated that around 10% of the country's health professionals were among the nearly 4,000 Sierra Leoneans killed by the virus. Recovering from such a severe crisis was never going to be simple, but in July 2019, MSF reached a milestone. A new paediatric hospital was opened in Kenema District. Sadly, declaring the outbreak over in 2016 would not be the last we heard of Ebola this decade. The virus has reared its head again, this time in the Democratic Republic of Congo. At this time, there is currently the second largest Ebola outbreak on record. Uh, this outbreak is currently taking part at several fronts, including in areas of active conflict with armed non-state actors, uh, making it difficult to access and currently threatens the borders of three other countries around the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. So MSF is, is actively engaged in that response and is currently present providing uh, Ebola treatment centres and community engagement. On the 1st of August 2018, an Ebola epidemic was declared and by the 17th of July 2019, the World Health Organization deemed the current outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. The northeast of the country has been an area of active conflict for the past 25 years, with armed groups across the region. Trust among the community is still a major problem for our teams working in the response, and in February 2019, two of our Ebola treatment centres in Katwa and Butembo were attacked. It's clear that the Ebola response must adapt to the needs and expectations of the public if we're to gain control of the epidemic. On the 3rd of October 2015, one event would change the future of MSF's operations in Afghanistan forever. On Saturday morning, MSF patients and staff killing Kunduz, joined the countless number of people who have been killed around the world in conflict zones and referred to as collateral damage or as an inevitable consequence of war. That morning, an MSF hospital was the target of a US airstrike, killing 42 patients, doctors and nurses. The 92-bed hospital was the only facility treating major trauma injuries in all of northeast Afghanistan. Here's MSF's international president, Joanne Liu, speaking at a press conference days after the attack. Our colleagues had to operate on each other. One of our doctors died on an improvised operating table, an office desk, while his colleague were trying to save his life. Today, we pay tribute to those who died in this abhorrent attack. We pay tribute to those MSF staff who, while watching their colleagues die 
and with their hospitals still on fire, carried on treating the wounded. Tens of thousands of people in Kunduz can no longer receive medical care now when they need it the most. Today, we say, enough. Even war has rules. The attacks took place despite the fact that we'd provided the GPS coordinates of the hospital to the US and Afghan governments and the US Army in Kabul as recently as four days before the bombing. Here's Wahidullah Sahel giving an insight into the horror faced by those caught up in the attack. There was only one uh, girl was uh, evacuated by our staff to the basement. She survived the rest. Uh, they were killed inside the ICU. The windows, they were on fire. Nobody could run away. MSF launched the Not A Target campaign to rally against the unconscionable attacks on health facilities. We demanded an independent investigation by the International Humanitarian Fact-Finding Commission, and in April 2016, the US military released its own investigative report. The request for an independent investigation has so far gone unanswered. The attack on the hospital in Kunduz will always be a reminder of the dangers of providing healthcare on a front line. Sadly, the Kunduz bombing wasn't the only attack on a health facility in 2015. In the following year, there were a further 77 attacks on medical facilities run and supported by MSF in Syria and Yemen. Hospitals are being continually dragged onto the battlefield, and patients and their doctors and nurses are being sacrificed in the process. South of Afghanistan's capital, Kabul, and not far from the Pakistan border, sits Kost Maternity Hospital. In this special place, our midwives and doctors have helped bring more than 100,000 babies into this world over the course of the last decade. Open to provide safe, high-quality and free maternal and neonatal care to women and their babies, the hospital serves an area of almost one and a half million people. Severine Kalowetz, an obstetrician from Belgium, has returned to cost nine times. Needless to say, it's become a project very close to her heart. I'm doing exactly the job why I started studying medicine so many years ago, and that is to help people who most need help. Afghanistan is a war-torn country. Our patients are continuously confronted with the war. Families lose husbands, um, children die, mothers die. And um, what MSF is offering them is a safe place to deliver. With 60 babies born each day, Kost is not only MSF's busiest maternity ward, but also one of the busiest maternities in the world. Severine was there to witness the very first baby born on the ward, as well as to celebrate the 100,000th birth in 2018. Also on a personal basis, I decided to learn the language, Pashtun. I bought a book in Pakistan when I was there, and also the national staff has been very keen and eager to learn, to teach me. It makes also a huge difference in your interaction, both with the staff and with the patients, if you can ask in Pashto, how are you, Tsangai? How is your baby? Um, is your baby a boy or a girl? Or just to say, welcome in our hospital. Almost all the team is female, employing around 430 people. And for many, it's their first job. 
uh, what is also nice about coming back every time is that you see people grow. I see Afghani women, Afghani doctors, Afghani midwives. It's like uh, yeah, almost a sisterhood of women. It's Afghani women taking care of Afghani women and Afghani babies. Many of the crises we've covered so far in this episode have led us to our final ongoing emergency. Conflict, social degradation and poverty have caused one of the largest mass movements of people the world has ever seen. Currently, more than 70 million people across the world have been forced to flee their homes. The North African country of Libya has become a focal point of the European refugee crisis, with the country's civil war allowing people smuggling to flourish. Since 2015, we've been running search and rescue operations for people making the perilous journey to Europe across the central Mediterranean. And in 2019, we began operations on Ocean Viking, a ship run in partnership with rescue organisation SOS Mediterranee. It's absolutely shocking hearing their stories and just the level of, of their suffering. It's, it just, it's absolutely... It's heartbreaking. That was humanitarian affairs officer Yuka Krikmar, who's been working on board the ship. The journey across the Mediterranean is the deadliest migration route in the world, but the reality of what people are fleeing in Libya is equally horrifying. One of the boys I spoke to, he's only 16, and he fled his home country after an armed group raided his village and they murdered his father right in front of him. His mother and siblings are now in a refugee camp. While he was in Libya, he has been kidnapped. He's been detained for long periods of time, forced to work in slave-like conditions, deprived of food and water, brutally beaten, and he has witnessed people dying in front of him. Migrants, refugees and asylum seekers in Libya face shocking levels of violence, extortion and arbitrary detention. This has serious consequences to their physical and mental well-being. The city of Tripoli, where many of the detention centres are based, has been plunged into conflict. The centres have been surrounded by fighting and even hit by airstrikes. People are desperately trying to flee. He tried to cross the sea but was caught by the Libyan Coast Guard and brought back to Libya where he was placed in Tajura Detention Centre. He was there when it was bombed during a military airstrike. There were over 200 innocent men, women and children locked in the centre at this time and he saw bodies everywhere. He told me that as he ran for his life, the guards opened fire. He showed me the scars on his feet from running through the flames of the burning building and running for hours as he fled for his life. After coming through such terrifying ordeals, it's becoming increasingly common for ships with rescued people on board to be stranded at sea, sometimes for more than a week at a time. Between July 2018 and July 2019, there were 21 standoffs between civilian rescue ships and European authorities as the ships are forced to wait for a port to disembark. For those that are rescued, the wait to get off the ship can be long and arduous. We've just heard that we've been assigned a place of safety. We are, we are now 
on our way to the island of Lampedusa in Italy. After such a long journey, it's a huge relief to finally hear some good news. I am very happy when I heard that we are going to disembark because I am, I am so much worried about my family because as well they are much worried about me. For 70 days I did not communicate with them and they did not know where I am. They even might think that I am dead or I, I, I am in detention centers. That's why I am pleased when I heard about this embarkation so that I can communicate to them so that they will know that I am still alive. For them also, for their mind to be free. That's why I am so pleased with it. Our work in the Central Mediterranean is a direct result of European government's failures to provide sufficient and dedicated search and rescue capacity. Instead, they're pandering to xenophobic sentiment and externalising their borders at an extreme human cost. European governments are continuing to use public funds to equip and support the Libyan Coast Guard, who forcibly return people trying to escape these appalling conditions. In some cases, the Coast Guard have threatened vessels trying to rescue people from drowning. These deadly policies need to end. The emergencies we've responded to over the past decade have drastically shaped who MSF is and what we stand for. Working across five continents, every one of our projects requires a different approach. Our teams have learned to better adapt their response to the communities they serve. In these 10 years, we've seen epidemics on an unprecedented scale. We've seen a shocking rise in attacks on health workers and facilities. We've been witness to mass displacements of people and have been there in the aftermath of natural disasters that have reduced homes and villages to rubble. While the next decade will be just as unpredictable, it's clear that one thing will not change. We will continue to provide free healthcare to those who need it most. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Emergency. If you're listening to this in the UK close to the release date, we're running an appeal to support the work of our emergency teams. These are the teams that respond to crises at a moment's notice. It would have been our E-teams that were first on the ground in many of the emergencies we've discussed today. If you would like to support their work, we would hugely appreciate it. Go to msf.org.uk slash podcast to find out more. Or if you're not in the UK, you can visit msf.org to see how you can support our work. As always, it's your likes, comments and shares that help spread the word about this podcast and the work of MSF. If you can please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast. <laughs>